Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 877 with Sed Moses. I wrote it. You know, it's not always the easy road. We believe in building our business over time, not taking shortcuts, not fucking people over, making decisions that are maybe going to help us in the short term, but could burn us in the long run. So we commit ourselves long term and we commit ourselves to build our regulars and our bars one person at a time and not over promote and talk big about ourselves because we prefer to, you know, be great instead of saying we're great. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering, and this is because Chow Now helps their restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. With Chow Now, take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site, and there are no setup fees or monthly payments. And what I really love about Chow Now is that you get to own your customer data. This is something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And when you schedule a demo, don't forget to ask about leveling up with Chow Now Direct, Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing package. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up today at chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Nowadays, people don't want to speak face-to-face. They rather communicate via text message and keep it anonymous. Talk to the Manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is convenient to you. And I think the most valuable aspect of Talk to the Manager is that you give people an opportunity to vent before they go public and write a negative review. Sometimes people just want to be heard and talk to the manager gives them that opportunity to be heard. Plus, you don't have to worry about your information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the phone number that talk to the manager provides. Also, with talk to the manager, it's like having a secret shopper. People will tell you any issues they come across at your restaurants, whether you want to hear them or not, but they'll be brought to your attention and that will help you improve your business. Show your guests you care enough to listen with talk to the manager head to talk to the manager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60 day trial 
What up, Unstoppables? We have a great show for you today, but a quick reminder that this podcast needs your support. You can support our sponsors. You can use our affiliate links. You can share this podcast with everybody you know. And you can join the Restaurant Unstoppable Network and be a part of the conversation. Today, we're talking to Sed Moses. Sed is the author of Pouring with Heart, and he's also the founder of what was originally 213 uh, Bar Group. I don't know, or 213 Hospitality. I'm not sure exactly what the original full title was. Today, they go by Pouring with Heart, and they have 26 bars throughout California, Colorado, and Austin, Texas, uh, and the things they're doing, man, uh, to create opportunity from within, to promote their people, to grow their people. Uh, it, there's just so many great lessons from today's episode and from his book, Pouring with Heart. I think this, this whole story started way back in 2000. I want to say like the mid nineties where said basically uh, decided that he was done with the financial industry. He was in finance. He was sick of exploring people for what they didn't know and of you know, working with billionaires and he decided that he wanted to go to the place where he's most happy. And for him, that was the bars industry. That's where he always felt where he belonged. He was always an outsider. And he, he belonged in bars. Uh, so he decided to lean into that world of the bar industry. He opened his first uh, bar liquid kitty back in like the mid nineties. He had a good solid three year to four year run with that bar before he decided to, you know, sell that to focus on his next project, taking over the golden gopher, which has been around since like, I think it was like 1905 and it was downtown Los Angeles. And the man, the story of this place when they took over and what they've built from that first that, that first bar in 2001 in downtown Los Angeles man the things they've done for their community you're in for a treat you're going to love this episode here he is said Moses with excitement allow me to introduce <laughs> to you today's guest founder and chief vision officer of pouring with heart said Moses said are you feeling with un- are you feeling with unstoppable to- are you feeling unstoppable today yeah i i, I really do I've felt it that way for the last 20 years, so let's go. I am so excited for this conversation. I've had uh, the privilege of being able to read your book on the flight and a couple of days before the flight um, on the way over here, and it just it hits it, it hits so many chords with me, man. Uh, so much of what you're trying to, to accomplish with this book is aligned with what we're trying to do here at Restaurant Unstoppable uh, to transform the industry and transform the world, and I love what you're doing to um, maintain the respect and dignity associated with the the bar the 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 i guess the the career of being a bartender uh and the the world bars held so much responsibility 200 100 years ago and it feels like society has kind of lost that and you you kind of bring that back to the surface in this book and um what you're doing with your businesses and i just want to say thank you um so that's how we're going to start this episode what's going through your mind as i'm saying that thank you eric yeah it makes me proud i'm i'm proud of writing this book and I'm proud of the people in my company that inspired me to write this book as well. So, um, but beautiful it, it warms me up to, to hear yes. that it resonated with you. Beautiful. So. Well, I cannot wait to dive into your story, but we like to start every episode by sharing a success quote or a mantra. What comes to your, your mind? As I say that, what, what success quote or mantra do you want to share with us? Take the high road. And, uh, I mean, that's, that's been my mantra for a while. I, 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 I'm known as, as doing a slight spin on it. I, I always say you take the low road, you're going to end up in the ditch. And I've seen it happen every time. And, and, uh, it's, it's, it's a guiding light for us and one of the values of our company and something we try and 
we try and live every day. Paint the picture of the high road for me. High road, you know, it's not always the easy road. It's, uh, you got to, we believe in building our business over time, not taking shortcuts, not, not fucking people over, not, not, uh, you know, making decisions that are maybe going to help us in the short term, but could burn us in the long run. So we sign long-term leak deals when we go into a business, it's 20 years minimum. We're, we're committed. We're, we commit ourselves long term and we commit ourselves to build, build our regulars and our bars one person at a time and not over promote and talk big about ourselves because we prefer to live, live, you know, be great instead of saying we're great. You know, I think that, um, that also I tie to yeah. taking the high road. When I hear the, 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 the expression take the high road, it's the, it's the obstacle is the way. It's like the yeah. I think those those two sayings are very similar. I, I love that book, Obstacles. Oh yeah, it's just like the, go through the resistance. The hard thing is the right thing, and there's reward in in doing the hard thing. And when I mean, you don't get too much reward. It might it might be the path of least resistance. It might be able to get the job done fast. But are you going to be happy with yourself afterwards? Is, is it the reward going to be worth it? Right, and it's hospitality business too. I mean, hospitality is about opening your heart to other people and taking care of everyone around them. At least in in my mind, it is, and in our company's mind. So, if you're not taking the high road, you're not really living that either. You're not living up to being hospitable and gracious yes. to those around you. Great way to get this thing started. So, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? When did you know that this path, the the bar industry was going to be your path. Well, I've got a good story. It really goes back to my grandmother. My grandmother, um, I grew up in, I'm from Bristol, Virginia, which is on the border with Tennessee. And my grandmother, every day was a cocktail party growing up. And I would spend, was born out there, spent my summers out there until I was a teenager. And my grandmother taught me how to make drinks for her and her friends. And sure, how it was to, convenient. How to be hospitable. <laughs> and, uh, she was famous for mint juleps. Okay. And she called them skillet juleps because she made them in the skillet. And um and she mixed the you know, the the mint, the sugar and, and the and 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 the whiskey in a skillet, which was really unique. Um but she um every day was a cocktail party and, and it was bl- started the day with bloodies then rolled to mint juleps in the afternoon. And when the first firefly came out, that was a sign. Mint julep cups go down. You're not allowed to touch your mint julep cup. As soon as you see a firefly, because that means the sun's about to set. Okay. And that you roll into bourbon and branch water from then on. So I was the one, starting when I was four years old, she taught me how to make drinks. And at my fifth birthday, I got the honor of serving her and her friends. And, and uh, I'll forever be grateful and sure, and sure enough, it's when the first firefly came out, she pointed at it. All the mint julep cups were down, and I had to clear them, and then roll to the next, basically the next course, which is bourbon and branch water. <laughs> um, so I'm forever grateful to her, and you know, I think that that kind of graciousness set in early to me, just the graciousness of the South and uh, and the people out there, and and how they. They they live that kind of lifestyle, and and that that uh, that still resonates today. But my first bar venture was a little. Uh, um, I, I kind of work. 
I had a bifurcated career initially. I was in finance and I was also tied to doing like these underground events and played in punk rock bands and stuff in Los Angeles. So I had, you know, not something you traditionally expect somebody to be a punk rocker and be in finance. <laughs> but um, that led me into wanting to do a bar and do an underground bar um, because I was kind of the part of like the subculture of LA at the time. So what I picked up from your book is that, you know, you, you kind of were, you always gravitated to the bar industry because it was where you felt comfortable. It was where you felt like you were with your people, the people that, so get into what you mean by that. Like what was it that the bar scene did for you as a young man? Um, I think it was a place where I felt comfortable amongst the, amongst the bartenders and, and the customers. Um, it's, I, I consider myself personally a misfit, um, building careers for other misfits, which is a lot of fun. And, uh, I feel like I'm one of, maybe one of those people that doesn't really, and I think that's true for a lot of hospitality people in general. They don't feel like they fit into traditional, um, American cor- corporate culture, professional settings, corporate culture, <laughs> nine to five, yeah. um, listen to the man, you yeah. know, do as you're told and, uh, put your head down and go to work. You know, that kind of, that I just didn't ever feel like I fit in that. I grew up amongst artists. My whole family were artists. So what is it about you and, that makes and, you feel like you didn't fit in? What? You know, I, I just grew up in a non-traditional household and I, tr- I tried to take jobs and, and I worked in finance for years and it just, it just never felt comfortable. It never, that structure, the, there was no warmth to it. There was no transactional. In a it sense? was felt more, yeah, more transactional, transactional than transformational. Yeah. That's what we, we say in our company, we're trying to take the transactional side out of, out of, out of because hospitality to yeah. me should not be that should not be feel transactional. If you feel just like a transaction, that's not hospitality. Um, so it never, never resonated with me. So I'd spend my off hours and when I was in finance in bars and hanging out with my friends and talking to the customers, talking to the bartenders and, and kind of dreaming of ha- having my own bar one day. What were the conversations well? that, that lit you up that the, the type of conversations you're having? Um, in terms of wanting to get in the bar business? Yeah. Like what were the, what was the appeal of the, these conversations? Well, I was also doing like these underground shows and bars, um, rock and roll shows and stuff. So I was hanging out. I, so I got to know a lot of the uh, bar owners in town to do shows and stuff. And, and they were just, I just felt like these are my people. They were, they were very, you know, even if they were super edgy, they were still f- super gracious people. And, and we hit, we just felt, felt comfortable. We yeah. felt like we related to each other on, on many levels. So you were, and, and they were, and they wore their heart in their sleeve. They were people that, that weren't trying to yeah. be somebody else and fake that they were trying to fit in. And that's what I love about this industry. And I feel like when you say that, like you were a misfit, I felt like the same way. Like I never felt like I could be myself when I was working in the corporate setting. When I had my desk job, I felt like I had to put a, a, a face. I call it professionalism, a professional. Like we need to be professionals in this industry. Don't get me wrong. But what is a professional? If you look up the definition of a professional, somebody who's able to do their job, who gives a F who you are, as long as you're able to do your job well. Right. Uh, but exactly. I think exactly that is so, that is so huge for 
that was a, such a huge development for our company and, and discovering that along the way that we we are the magic of our bars and of our the business that we were growing was our people and and the people that could just be themselves those are the people that i loved in bars yeah because people you you hear the truth in bars people can let down their their hair so to speak they let down they put down their any facades and and they're and they're welcome yeah. to just be themselves what you see is what you get. And that's what you get with people that are attracted to the bar industry, to the restaurant industry. And there's always that, 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 that front that we put up in the corporate setting of like, this is the person I have to be here because professionalism isn't my ability to do the job. It's the way you want me to be, to act, which in my opinion, most professional settings want you to be bland and like talk nothing about anything but the business. Right. Right. Um, so what did you, are the profits? Yeah. So, being, I mean, having a, a background in finance, though, is, is a great platform to launch yourself into the restaurant industry because I feel like where most people go wrong in the restaurant or bar industry, the the hospitality industry, is in the details, the numbers. They just don't know that part of it. So, I mean, what did you learn early on that, that you think might have set you up? I learned how to raise money. I was good at raising money, and I was good at building confidence and, and building relationships and uh, I mean, that's what raising money for a bar or for if you're in finance, raising money from anybody, you have to build that trust and that relationship of trust um, before and and resonate with people and, and be truthful and, so raising- and build that trust over time. And, uh, you know, I couldn't without being able to raise money, I wouldn't none of this would ever happen. You wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting here in Arts District Brewing right now. So let's get let's kind of get into that. So what were you doing specifically in finance before you decided to leave your previous life in finance? What was your job? What were you doing? Like what was the work you were doing? In finance, I was a professional money manager. I, I was uh, I was ra- I was I was building algorithms when I was a teenager for the horse races, and then those translate into algorithms I built for the stock market later became called quant analysis, quantitative analysis in the stock market. And I was building those models when I was in high school and so forth. And so when that became kind of a thing and my quant models generated huge returns in the stock market, then people naturally gravitated to me because I was winning all these U.S. championships for returns and things like that. So you're building algorithms, but what... At what point did you have to raise money? Why were you raising money? Well, that came later as soon as I started my own company. Okay. And, uh, and, and coming out of college, I started my own firm and we need to raise money for and build, you know, pay the bills. So, so what did you learn about raising money? How do you do that? What, what does it take to raise money? What were you doing? Uh, it just right? takes what we're doing right now. It's, it's one on one. Building, building a relationship with people and building their trust and building their confidence and, and giving them transparency. How do you build trust? Transparency and so forth. I think it's trans, trust is built over time. I mean, you have to build and building a relationship. It's about being transparent, being open, um, connecting with people face to face and being honest and connecting over potentially similar backgrounds or similar point of view or values, just like me and you have over 
points you know, of connection, the, connect, common, points of connection. Ground. Yeah, yeah. This book and talking about my values and what what what, what I want to build, and giving them that kind of pers- perspective that of that we that I wasn't part yeah. of the status quo. There and, was a- and everything I'm doing is I don't want to be part of the status quo. I want to I want to do something that that disrupts and breaks new ground and does does things in new ways. You're talking my language, man. I love this. So what you mentioned in the book, uh, this, in the finance world, there was almost like this, this feeling of leveraging what the person on on the other side of the table didn't know and trying to get the most out of a transaction based off of the other person's incompetence. Get into that. Cause to me, that is like, what is that? And well, I can see how did that. Where, where did that come up into your past, and how? Could, well, the stock market basically there's a there's a winner and a loser on on every trade. If you're buying to some, if you're buying something and it takes off, the person that you sold, that sold it to you basically is missing out on that upside. So, so there's a kind of a winner and loser on each side. So you kind of have to look at it. But I I was using analysis to really be able to put the edge in my in my favor. So, but there was a loser on the other side of that. So, um, in my mind, I like to play win-win business where everyone wins and all my stakeholders, including especially my staff, I want them to win first is that's what it's all all about for me. I'm so customer is next and the stakeholders and investors are, if we're doing that right, if we do the first two things, right, the cost, the stout, the, the shareholders are going to do really well. Yeah, for some reason, it feels like, and I hope we're as a, as a collective society, we're moving away from this. But this idea of of when you're in business, anything goes. It's about maximizing your stakeholders' return. And at, when you think that way, somebody has to lose. And it's this, it's this cultural thing where, for some reason, there's certain points within business where it's okay for people to lose. And I don't know why we got that way, but I love what you exactly what you said. Said, and it's one of Stephen R. Covey's seven habits of highly effective people: think win-win. But I say take it a, a step further. Think win-win-win. Think mm-hmm. about how can you create situations where everybody wins, and why don't we think more like that? Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I think you know it's not what, what business schools teach. It's not what society teaches us. It's it's. Um, it goes all the way back to to Darwin, I think, and ter- Darwinism and so forth in terms of that uh, survival of the fittest and, and, and so forth. And, you know, we're taught that in schools. And instead of when, 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 we're not taught to think. We're, we're taught, like, who's ever the strongest and the smartest wins, um, which I've learned is not the case. What wins is, is people that are out, to build something special together. Yes. And, and, and I think and co-op, cooperation and collaboration of, of people and alignment of people that believe in each other, they, they can win. And that that's, and that's something that we're really trying yeah, to build. And, and, and there's truth to the, the, the idea of the strong survive in nature, right? And over time evolution. But you see that a lot with like species that are like one off, not, not communal species, right? Like, right. Like a, a, a like a cougar or something or a leopard, like the the strong or a, 
I was going to say wolves, but they're not a good example because they're packed animals. But humans are packed animals. Like we grew up, we, what was best for the tribe was best for everybody. And I think that we're kind of unique and separate from the rest of mother nature in that sense where, I mean, everything I think is kind of a closed circuit and like everything is connected and balanced. But in, in our history, we, we were only as strong as the weakest link. You know what I mean? And like, exactly. and like we were only as good as the collective. And like that's what made humanity go and Homo sapiens go as far as we have is that that we leaned on each other, you know. So Absolutely. like, why don't we think about that more? Like, why don't we lean into our uniqueness? Well, I think that's how you make your your bars and your restaurants great is leaning into that. And, yeah, and that's what I've definitely learned along the way. And the more I've trusted that and invested in that, the more successful we are. I'm sure we're going to get more into the details of that, but where were you in your life when you said, screw this finance world, I'm done. I'm done. I want to pursue my passion. It was after I opened my first bar. I uh, opened a little bar called Liquid Kitty in West LA, West Los Angeles, and that was in 1996. So that was 20, 26 years ago. And uh, and just did it as kind of a, a, a side project since I was full-time and in, in, in the running this other company, a finance company. And, and, uh, it was, it was, it was so much fun and it was super profitable despite not knowing what the fuck I was, what, sorry. what I've said worse. Keep going. Like I was doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, we, I think we, I had good aesthetic. I had good people around me and we were successful despite our, our, and, um, well, my particular um, lack of expertise at that point in the business, and so we, we've kind of identified that you're you. It seems like from a very early point in your evolution, you picked up this significance on the collective thinking, win win, not being an asshole, not screwing people over. You had the finance background. You're a, you're an analytical person. I think that having that foundation, understanding numbers and how they work in business, especially, is worth its weight in gold. If you could weigh that. You know, like so important. So I've identified that as I'm sure something that's served you well. Yeah, for sure. And just coming out of finance, where my firm grew into this kind of pretty large company, where I was raising money for billionaires and so forth, and and suddenly I found myself I was like surrounded with assholes. I'm like, what am I? What the hell am I doing here? And uh, this is not what I want to do the rest of my life. So when I went into the bar business and and hospitality my my whole take was i do not I, i'm going to use the no asshole rule i'm going to surround myself with good people so, and, and uh but what people, a valuable lesson though yeah it was and and it's not about the bottom line i i was also driven not by the bottom line because i just love love the people i love the business so much and uh so it was, I was not driven by the the dollar and I wasn't driven by, by being with assholes. So, so give me an example me. of some of the asshole kind of shit you saw. What was like the, the, the standard day that the things that you would see at work that just kind of rubbed you the wrong way? Well, there was a particular billionaire, for example, that I met with him in his office. He had like pictures of every president, the last four or five presidents of him shaking hands with them. As soon as I met with him, he sat me down. I, I guess I could say now his, his name's Marvin Davis, but he's he's passed away since. But he sits me across the from his chair, 
and, and tries to intimidate me and says, so how much is it going to take? I said, I'm sorry, what, what would you like? He goes, I'm going to buy you. I'm going to buy you right now. How much is it going to take? I said, I'm not for sale. It's like, that's not how this negotiable. Yeah. <laughs> it's not negotiable, but behind him was a mural of all his assets, like his oil wells, his he owned 20th Century Fox. He owned all these things that were painted behind him. It's a big man. Um, but so, so I specifically said, I'm not for sale. He's like, well, we'll see about that. Um, you know, that kind of intimidation and, and uh, it, just, it just rubs me the wrong way. Then from then on, he, he says, well, I'm going to do a trial account, put a, a million dollars with you or whatever but I want to get a phone call every trade that you do. Turns out he was trade. We were trading his, his money, but every time I put in a call, he was trading with another hundred million of his own money and another account. So he didn't have to pay our fees. So he was okay. So he's like, so he was taking your consultation basically and replicating what you were telling with another, with a hundred, hundred times as much money. Yeah. So it was, just so he could escape my fees. I mean, this, we're talking about a billionaire here. Yeah. Just, just so, screwing here's the me thing. over because here's I'm the, not for sale. So, so he's you, like, I'm going to screw this kid. But here's the thing. You know this guy cares about legacy. You know he cares about his, his, his ego. But he's measuring his legacy and his ego based off of the oil you know, wells, the handshakes oh, the with, assets, yeah. with people in high places. And that, for him, was what he was marking his success on. However... He's no longer here, and I, as as much as I hate to speak poorly about the, the those who have passed, we're talking about much of, his, of an asshole he is. So, what's your legacy mean to you? You know, like what did it, at what cost do you want to get this shit? Do you care yeah. about what people say about you and the the impact you made on this world? If you do, don't be a fucking asshole. You know, like what really matters? Yeah, what well, you're not going to put that amount of billions you have. On your gravestone. Yeah. It's going to say whether you're a loving father, a loving member of society, you know. Um, so, yeah. Can't take it with you. So, if, if legacy means anything to you, think win-win and possibly win, if possible. Win-win-win. Um, awesome way to kind of start the... the no, we're well into the interview, but I think that's a great lesson to, to take going into your first restaurant which was liquid kitty um you said you surrounded yourself with good people so the first lesson you learned you didn't want to work with assholes anymore it's all about surrounding yourself with good people and what a good core value to have a baseline to start with um what's going through your your mind you want to weigh in oh yeah no i think we're on on the same same wavelength there yeah so you know i yeah i had some people i had a partner that was experienced and a great bartender and a great and a great guy that was also partners and a high school buddy that was a, was really good with numbers and a, and a great guy that played in punk rock bands that he had the same kind of ethos I did and uh, three of us teaming up was really it was kind of a beautiful collaboration for my first first foyer into the business. And yeah. you had that bar you said you opened in 1996. You had it until 2001. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I've, I ultimately had to sell it to invest everything into downtown LA to do what I was doing down here. Yeah. So what was what was your strategy going into that first bar? Why did you 
you know, you, you said the finance industry is done with me. I want to get into an industry that I can surround people with doing the people I like, real people, authentic people, genuine people and serving people and being a part of this, this bar scene that just appeals to me because of the people. When you opened this first bar, what was going through your mind? What was, what were you trying to execute? What was your purpose? What was your mission? The first bar, well, with Liquid Kitty, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. So it was just, at that point, I was an experiment to see. It was uh, kind of a pr- passion project. And I didn't know how it would do. I didn't know how, what, what we'd find out along the way. It was more of an experiment because I, my full-time gig was still doing something else. Um, so, at, what, at, so, but when we started downtown and building the Golden Gopher and all the bars that we've built in downtown LA, that that was all based around a complete vision of what we wanted to do. I I, I cannot wait to dive into how you've scaled Pouring with Heart. And I know you you didn't start off as Pouring with Heart. You it was a different group name. What was that again? Two one three. Two one three. Is that the area code? Yeah, it's the area okay, code. Justin, tell from New in downtown LA. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so this liquid kitty isn't a part of two, one, three, two, one, three, two, three has not been established yet at this point. Correct. Um, so I'm assuming you had money. Is that a weird assumption to make? And as much as it's weird, how, how weird it is to talk about money. It's a part of business. We, we need it to start. Yeah. I didn't grow up with money, but yeah, i made some money with this finance, with this business. I was, I was good at it. So in this first project, were you mostly money? Is that your? Is that what you brought to the table? Were you the finance? Were you funding this? No, I I was uh, in, with Liquid Kitty. You mean? Yeah. Oh, with Liquid Kitty. Um, no, I I I was part of the, I I was creative guy, so I was con- concept guy. Came up the name was actually named after so visionary. Uh, kind I, of. I came up with the name. I came up with part part of the design i collaboration collaborated on the design the cocktail menu i pretty much laid out most of that um i already had a vision of what i wanted this to what wanted, was that wanted vision? that bar to be do you remember that vision yeah it was just a rock and roll dive bar but with 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 attitude with um had the symbol of the place was um it was a martini glass and a cigarette but they flashed between each other with the olive and the and the martini glass turning into the ember of the cigarette, so it would flash between a cigarette and a, and a martini glass, and the ember of the olive and cigarette nice. would, would stick. So it was it was kind of, at that time it was like an ode to smoking and drinking. Okay, and I, I have martinis have always been one of my favorite cocktails. So we served damn good martinis, and we had played great music and and uh, stiff drinks and. And had a really fun atmosphere for people in an area at the time that didn't that really didn't exist. So you had two partners. How did they compliment you at this time? Were you thinking like, if I'm my job is the visionary, the design, the the vision of what, where we want to go and what we are and what our, our our brand is? Who did you surround yourself with? Well, one was a experienced bartender behind the bar that was worked in some of the coolest bars in town. Um, so you knew you needed the technician. The, yeah. The so he he was the expert. I was an expert more from the other side of the bar. He yep. was an expert behind the bar. You say the other side of the bar, the consumer experience. Consumer experience, Got exactly. It. Because I wasn't a bartender myself. And then Dave Childs, who was a close friend of mine, and he 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 was, uh, knows a lot about leases, um, 
lease deals. He helped negotiate the lease deal with me and, uh, and was the general manager too of the place oversee the oversaw the business day to day. So, so what I love, um, it's a lot of fun to reflect back because there's when the, all the people I interview, there's usually a restaurant that they start. And a lot of times that first restaurant, in this case, it wasn't a failure because you were able to, to sell it and use it as a, a deposit for your next restaurant. But it was a, it was a trial run, you know, it was your first go. I'm sure reflecting back after selling it, you probably said to yourself, there's things we probably could have done better out of the gate after getting experience, after learning, mm-hmm. after having a few, you know, runs at it. Like, so what did you learn? Like, what do you know now reflecting back at that time, going back to 1996 or 1998, was it 96? 96, yeah. What, what advice would you give your prior self to, to, to go into that first venture with a little more success? Not that it just suggests it wasn't a success. Yeah, I think, you know, we had great people, but it t- took a little while to get build the chemistry of the team. And I think that's something I've learned how important that is from day one. So what wasn't happening at the last location that, that wasn't letting you get these people? I, I think we just were hiring just random people that showed up based on resumes, not people that were, were dedicated to the business, dedicated to the bar, dedicated to building a team together and, and being part of something special. And I think that's so important in, in the interview process and, and really finding people that are, are dedicated, aren't, star tenders um just looking to hop bar hop from to make the most tips or actors that that masquerading as bartenders <laughs> or vice versa which is a i think a unique la challenge yes <laughs> yeah Sometimes yeah if a bartender back in the day would tell me i'm a i'm a i'm not really an, a bartender i'm an actor i, I said well you should act like a a damn bartender. <laughs> That's good. So, <clears throat> at what point? Wh- why get rid of Liquid Kitty? What was what was your strategy there? Why, if it was successful, if it was going well, if you were able to evolve and, and, and inject culture into it over time, what was the point of walking away from it? Why just why not just keep it? Um, my partner did. He kept it for the whole twenty year lease, and it was really successful, and it did it did well. Um, at the time, I just needed capital. I was. I had this huge vision of what I could build downtown, 10 bars in 10 years, and and uh, I needed all the capital I could. So why, what was go, what was driving to, you to do 10 bars in 10 years? What was what was going on there? Yeah, well, it was a vision of bringing back downtown L.A. At the time, downtown L.A., the area where we are right now, is was really sketchy, and nobody went out past dark. It was uh, had the highest murder rate in the United States. It was... It was just flat out dangerous. Why did that it matter control. to you? So I had pride in the city I came from, and also I loved the architecture and the buildings down here, and I knew it was like a clean slate where we could build something special. We could build a bar hopping district, which didn't exist in Los Angeles at the so time. You think about turning around a community. You don't. The, the first thought isn't let's throw bars in it, right? But bars are what I love. That's, yeah, bars build community. I, I would argue that bars are. I'm hoping that you argue. I'm trying to set you up for an argument. Right ah, now. gotcha. Um, so, why is a bar um, a, a way to, to to turn a community around? Well, bars can operate in areas that are down and out because young people don't mind stepping over people to get into a funky bar. They don't want to run into their parents. That's what I always say. Young yeah. people don't want to run into their parents, so they don't want to go to fancy neighborhoods for a bar. 
they, they don't mind going into a sketchy neighborhood. And I certainly didn't at that time. I've, I've been to some real, real dives and down some dark alleyways myself to find the best bar in town. Um, and so I knew I did, you know, that young people and the people that I knew didn't care about the area being funky and a little bit dangerous and edgy. Um, I could also score super inexpensive leases and had the best architecture and the best buildings in the city to work with. Um, so it was just, you know, it was, I, I saw what it could be and I just needed to yeah. put, invest the time, the, the patient, have the patience to make it happen and the fortitude to ride it out. There's a lot of evidence too. Sorry, did I cut you short? No. There's a lot of evidence um, that suggests, you know, young people, they're early adopters. They, and most like if, if they adopt something, if they take something on, like other generations follow. It's it, you see, especially with social media, it's whatever. If you want to know what social platform is going to be hot in three or five years, what are the tweens doing? What are they using? Mm-hmm. And they they break the mold. It's, so we follow like young people are trendsetters. They kind of set the standard. They set the expectation. And if you can figure that out and you can appeal to that market, um, I, I think that they kind of open the door for other markets. Yeah, I, I agree. And at the time, you know, that necessarily wasn't at the top of my head. I just had it. The, I just knew I loved it. Yeah. And I knew there'd be other people that would love it. And I toured other cities and knew about the bar districts in other cities and what, what this could be. And at the time, everything else in LA was, was messed up. It was Hollywood was like this velvet rope attitude. Um, Celebrate celebritants, I call them. Um, What's a celebritants? C- celebrity debutants, you know. <laughs> and and uh, bottle service, and if you want to sit there, you know, there's a line of people to get in. You picked at the door based on how you look, and then once you get in, it's empty. Yeah. And if you want to sit down, sorry, that's fifteen hundred dollars for a. It's bottle about of, status. A bo- bottle it, of vodka. It's not about yeah, pouring with heart. They called it. Yeah, they called it. Lifestyle brands, but it was it was BS as far as I was concerned, and I was over it. So you couldn't really bar hop in those neighborhoods because you were charged a fortune for a drink. If you wanted to sit down, you had to buy expensive bottles, and you might not even get in because they might pick choose somebody else over you. So it was we we went we wanted to be really the antithesis, represent the antithesis of that, and be something that was overly open to everyone and about inclusivity and not exclusivity and about serving great drinks without attitude and, um, and, and creating a neighborhood where you could bar, hop from bar to bar and experience multiple things in a night. You well, know? One of the things I love about your book, pouring with hearts and also the, so you have your, your company pouring with hearts, which is the, your, your mother company, right? The, I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, I should know what you'd call it, but like that's your, your, your bar group pouring with hearts. You, the title of your book also pouring with heart. I shouldn't say hearts pouring with heart. Um, you get into the detail, the history of bars and restaurants and like the, the origin of these things in on this idea of how bars can be, can, can transform an, a community Talk about the significance, the, 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 the history of bars and what they do for society. Well, historically in this country, just talk, I talk mostly about this country in the book, um, 
because I think a lot of people aren't aware of it. I mean, bars were the communal centers of, of, of early United States. Um, in fact, at one point, it was illegal not to have a bar or tavern in a town. You were fined for that. Why? The city and town. Because the bar and tavern was the communal center of the city. It's it acted, public service. Act, acted as initially as the... Ch- they built taverns and bars and cities before they built churches. So they acted early on as, as city center for, for spiritual reasons and for postings, jobs, um, There were land, post office, there were real estate. Community meetings. Yeah. yeah, everything took place in a bar. And it was considered, um, you know... It was it was it was the place that community could put their come together and and get out of their own house or get off work and come and and meet and 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 celebrate celebrate their lives together. Yeah, and like the origin of pub public house, you know, like it's these things. We I think society needs a place to come to be together to bump up to socialize, and that's what the bars do. They bring people together. They they lower barriers and they take somebody who might be a hedge fund manager. They put that person right next to your, you know, your, your blue collar, you know, worker who, and it's just, I don't know. It's a a place for different classes of society to come together, to come together, to be one. Right. And I think, I mean, I don't know if that's what your angle was way back in 2001, but you knew that somehow you knew your gut told you that bars were going to be the solution to turn around a community. Yeah, I think you've seen. I've seen it in other cities too, and I, I, I'd had experience. I saw the gas lamp district blow up in San Diego, uh, lo- the Lower East Side in New York. I'd seen, um, you know, I'd seen the the fact that bars are the, you know, they're early adopters, and they bring young people, they bring a community together before the restaurants come in. The bars come in first, the art galleries come in, and then the then the restaurants come in and then it starts getting safer and safer and takes time before baby gap comes in you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) doesn't really come into bad areas (laughs) so let's kind of so you you left your um liquid kitties it sounds like you sold your share to your partner uh what was going through your mind at that point Actually, before you answer that question, let's take our first break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to kind of talk about the origin story of 213, which evolved into Pouring With Heart. Today's episode is brought to you by Chow Now, a commission-free online ordering system and food ordering app helping restaurants feed their hungry customers. Over 20,000 restaurants trust Chow Now for their online ordering. This is because Chow Now helps restaurants keep their profits, own their online experience, meet their customers everywhere, and make every diner a regular. Here's how it works. Chow Now clients get listed on the free Chow Now marketplace. Once they're there, they can meet new customers and take unlimited commission-free orders through Chow Now's app and site. There is no setup fee or monthly payment. Now, this is what I really love about Chow Now. You get access to valuable customer data, which allows you to personalize the experience and the relationship with your guest. In other words, you own the relationship with your guests, something not all third-party ordering apps can claim. And we cannot wrap up this message without telling you about how to level up with Chow Now Direct. Chow Now Direct is Chow Now's comprehensive online ordering and marketing 
package. With Chow Now Direct, you get your own branded ordering app for iPhone or Android, email and print marketing, plus POS integration, and much more. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 30% off the Chow Now Direct annual plan. Sign up at www.chownow.com slash unstoppable. That's chownow.com slash unstoppable. We're back and now I want to get into the the origin of two one three. So when you when you walked away from your previous partnership, Liquid Kitty, what was going through your mind? Uh, I already asked you that you said you wanted to transform downtown. You wanted to bring downtown back, and you, you thought and you wanted to open ten bars in ten years was your goal. Yeah, it was to transform downtown, but it was also to and it was also to bar bring a real bar culture to Los Angeles because at the time it was hard to get good drinks. It was hard to go to a place where it's either you know, a kind of a college bar where the college kids got hung out or it was a sports bar. Um, and that was, but there was like of a that craft one. cocktail bar. Like there a, wasn't a craft cocktail bar. There wasn't very many good neighborhood bars. There were some out in the Valley. There wasn't the bartender's bar. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I'd been traveling already in, in San Francisco and New York and saw what was happening up there in those cities. And uh, just was felt really inspired to to bring bring something like that and in, into downtown LA. So, what was your strategy? Look, reflecting back at this, how did you know you were going to do it? What did you need? Where were you before you got? Well, started? I needed to first of all, I needed to leave my job in finance, so I left left that. But you owned the firm, didn't you? Yeah, we so- we basically we I, I sold off assets and sold sold everything I could from it and did let you go need- of all my clients but a lot of uh, some of my biggest investors ended up wanting to invest in what i'm doing now and are, remain big investors in what we're doing so i was curious were you did you have to go to a lot of investors early on or were you with your the, the your first business the finance business and after did you sell it and or did you just liquidate your assets we um some of it we sold and some of it we liquidated and we, we basically told people we at that time i wasn't I was pretty negative about the stock market at that point, so I felt that it was going to be hard to get the kind of returns we'd been getting to. So, so some of some of the firm we some of the we had we had like a mutual fund deal. We just liquidated that deal, terminated that deal with that group, um, and and it was just time to move on. And uh, so that was important. I salvaged whatever relationships I had that I wanted to bring with me and uh, sold Liquid Kitty to raise money as well and and put and started building a strategy and building this company 213 so that we could handle build an infrastructure to handle 10 bars because that was important we needed to to build something that could an infrastructure so what was available for what's that look like support the bars so what did that infrastructure need? What were you telling yourself back here? Well, this is what I'm going to need. And how did you know? Um, fact was, I didn't know. So it was, it was, it was a little bit of uh, trial and error. And uh, it was, it was, but it was about building, basically, we, I, setting up, setting up the company as a separate entity. Two one three is a management company over each bar, for example. Something that you traditionally don't do if you're just doing one bar. Or so two bars. How did you know to do that? 
What are the benefits of doing that? Uh, the benefit of doing that is basically if one of the places uh, has like an incident or a, um, a fight or you suddenly lose the liquor license in one place, it doesn't rub off and affect the other places as well. So all the bars were, if you know, basically if one business goes gets hurt and doesn't do well, it doesn't affect all the other yeah, ones. But most, I feel like most restaurants don't get that into it. They don't realize that you need to, to start like a like an LLC, a limited or whatever S corp, whatever you want to do a, a a parent company that serves as a mother company. But how do you set up transactions? Like because you have the overarching company, but are you paying that company to manage you like how does that work yeah we basically set set up 213 as a management company so okay. it was getting management fees to manage all the all the bars individually and all the bars were separate entities um so we set up it was spirit adventures one through ten we set up the corporations so that when we so before and, you and, even knew what the companies that they were you you set up spirit adventures one through ten Yes. Talk about pulled, pulled the names. Yeah. What was the the was there like psych, psychology behind this? Were you trying to manifest destiny, or did you just have that much we confidence were, that you were going to do it? I was confident we were going to do it, but <laughs> nobody else was. It was so sketchy at the time. They thought I was crazy just doing one bar downtown. I think you read about the book. Yeah. In the book, um, we talk about how how sketchy and dangerous Paint the downtown, picture for downtown was. was at the time. Talk to us about the first time you walked into Golden uh, Gopher. Golden Gopher. Well, Golden Gopher was a bar, the first bar I wanted to do. Um, it was a Charles Bukowski hangout. It was an infamous bar in Los Angeles, the oldest existing bar at the time. Established 1905. 1905. Teddy Roosevelt apparently rode in on horseback at the opening of the bar. That's awesome. Um, it has incredible, incredible history to it. And I had had experience being in the bar um, before and fell in love with the bar. Um, also had a liquor license allowing full liquor on site and full liquor to go, which was it was the only one in Los Angeles at the time. So um, what was the condition of this bar? What was this? Can we even call it a bar or it was, was it something else? It was something else. <laughs> what was This it? bar was literally when I walked back in to, to, to talk to the owner about buying it, it was the most dangerous bar I've ever been to in the United States up to this up to this point. I've been in some scary bars in third world countries and had a gun pulled on me one time, which wasn't <laughs> great. But um but um look the gopher was really sketchy. I I start off the book and then you know, really with stories about how sketchy that was. We walked in and it basically smells like death. Somewhere between death and uh open sewer. And, it, and as we approached the bathroom, we had to use the John and uh, walked into what I can only describe as, as a glorified open sewer. It was so disgusting. There was feces stains on the Ugh. floor, broken mirrors, broken glass, um, had th- headed to the toilet, and there was vomit caked all over the toilet. I mean, it was just in such bad shape. All the walls were kicked in with brown fluid dra- draining into the walls. You're just like, what is going on in this place? And there in the corner turned out to be the manager of the bar smoking a crack pipe. So that was the guy I was supposed to get together. So, And this is the place that you're saying, this this is my this spot. Is, 
<laughs> Why? Yeah. Exactly. Because it had the golden liquor license, had all yeah. the history, and we, if we could buy an existing place, we wanted to do it. And uh, so we set out to buy that place. It, it was beyond beyond gnarly. It turned out it was run by the most dangerous gang in the town at the time, the 18th Street Gang. And uh, as I mentioned, it just seemed like the uh, I found a dead body in the back alley behind the bar when we were in construction, for example. It was just, it was every day. It was, Change uh, needed felt to like happen. For, for, yeah, downtown, it needed to happen. And we started with probably the, we started in a, in a situation of extreme adversity because it was so dangerous just the way we felt being on site and and, uh, and then opening the doors to our customers and that kind of adverse, basically with no customer base because the place was, at the time, was a front for 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 a selling crack. In prostitution, that, too, from yeah, what I got from prostitution the book. Yeah. as well, yeah. So it, so it wasn't it wasn't the right customer base for us necessarily <laughs> so we were starting at ground zero so that's yeah. what i'm curious about like how do you go like i'm trying i want you to paint that picture because what i want to talk about next is how do you turn that around how do you go into a community that is ridden with just not your ideal customer you don't want crack in your bar you don't want prostitution in your bar you don't want people that are attracted to these things in your bar so how do you go from that environment of that's what this place is known for? That's this place's reputation. How do you, how do you turn that around? How do you maintain the name? It's you maintain the name, you maintain the brand. Like I can only imagine how you flip something like that. That's an extreme picture you just painted for us. And you flip that. How the hell did you do it? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, well, that's where the book starts. And I think, that voyage of turning that place around was the magic that I discovered in the business. And the reason I wrote this book and the reason we named our company pouring with heart as well, because along the way we just wait, you know, believe me at first I was like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do to turn this place around, but we need to survive. Was our motivation initially was survival. Yeah. If we're going to build 10 bars downtown, we're starting with this one. We got to survive this one in order to get to the next nine. Yeah. And I feel like and, I need to. And what's that? I was going to say, I think I need to throw some context into this real quick, just so for the listeners to understand. You went from what you just described, that scenario, to 26, as of today at least, 26 bars, locations across at least three different cities. Um, three states. Three states. Mm-hmm. Um, California, Texas, and Colorado. Correct. In 20 years. I mean, it's just crazy to me to think that like you go from that extreme of just this bar that looks like you could never turn it around beyond repair, right? To scaling a 26 location bar business. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of successful businesses have had a period of extreme adversity in their history before they can figure out how to really scale because you really have to deal with tough conditions um and to really get to the bare bones i think of what what your business is going to be about to before you can scale a business yeah so you said it all started with just survival you you picked this location because of the opportunities that brought with it the licensing that were hard to come by uh when you purchased the business you purchased when you when you change when you purchased the business you purchased its licenses too 
And that was the reason why you took this approach. Um, and then after that, you said it was just survival. So kind of paint the picture of what the first thing was you had to do. Well, first was clean up the place. It yeah. was, it was in bad, it was in really rough shape. Imagine. So, so, uh, so we laid out, you know, a plan for how we're going to fill up. suit on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we literally had to get, I bet, uh, some gnarly stuff out of that bar. Um, and, and it was, it was, a, it was a challenge, but, and we had built a, basically a new sewer lines, everything, all the toilets were all backing up into, into the bathrooms and things like that. It was, it was bad. So, um, I mean, that took almost nine months to, of, of reconstructive surgery on that place. And, but at the same time, not losing the soul of what that neighborhood bar was about, because that's really important to what us. What was the soul? Well, it had it had history. It was over a hundred years old at the t- well, nineteen oh five. Just shy of it was just shy of a yeah. hundred years at that point. It's over a hundred years now. Um, it had great some great bones to it, and uh, so that was things we wanted to preserve. That you know, so it still felt like kind of our our thing is to build. We want to build in the great bones of of our of our city and the cities that we go into. And we want to expose those bones and the soul of the place we want to still be living. But, we, of course, we need to put in infrastructure so that we can do enough volume to pay the bills and, and to build something out of that place. So you strip it down, you clean it out, you give it a facelift. Did you redesign things? It was at the same bar, like with the bones, the basics the same? Uh, most of the bones were, were the same. Yeah. But it just needed new systems like plumbing, plumbing, electrical, sewer system, all those lines needed to be done. We also took nine months. We also had to build a patio within the space so that our smokers could be safe because outside in front, it was too dangerous on the street. We're not talking about meat smokers. We're talking about cigarette smokers, cigarette smokers or cigars or whatever you smoke. Yeah. Um, but yeah, weed wasn't legal in California at that point. It's still not legal on the streets, though, is it? Um, not on the streets. Yeah, in public, it's not legal. Yeah. Um, but the it's it was um so in order to protect those smokers, we we took off part of the roof of the building in order to create a patio within the space that could be safe for smokers to go to. And now that patio is really popular. It's become a big feature of the bar. Um, so that was important too. just to everything we were thinking about is like, how, how do we keep our people safe? How do we keep our customers safe? How do we keep our staff safe? Everything and ourselves safe. Did you need new partners? Like you had previous partners with look at kitty. Did you going into this? Um, what was your approach with who you were surrounding yourself with? Yeah, it was a good, uh, it was a buddy of mine that we initially bought the bar together with. Um, after later on, we parted ways on just difference of opinion on things, but, um, but yeah, it was, but, and we took investors in that deal and, uh, I raised most of the money as I'm good at raising money. So and, well, uh, you've mentioned this whole, I'm good at raising money thing a couple of times. So I feel like I need to go into this and really pull back the layers. You said it's about building relationships, being honest, being transparent. What were you saying to these people? What, what were they, what were they investing in? How were like, I feel like there's more that we can get out of you on, on that vertical of, of getting the money. Um, yeah, I, I, I was basically 
laying out a vision. I laid out projections. I laid out, um, you know, how the, how, how the returns would stack up. Basically, we raised the first investors. We did it as, as notes. So they were notes with uh, kicker returns on top. So they got, I think it was 10% return on debt notes with us with three years of profit profit returns after that. Um, so we did them as, as, yeah. They were unsecured notes at the time, too. What's a so note? What do you mean by a note? It's basically a loan. Okay. So you said you need three? Say that one more time. I want to make sure I understand. So we did it. I think it was a five. It was um, five-year payback is what we projected. We ended up paying everyone back within three years um, plus 10% interest on their money plus... Uh, after that, after they were paid back, they got three years of profit sharing on top of that. Wow! And how many? How much money were you looking to raise? How many? How many investors did you need? I think it was um, raised about a half a million dollars, and it was 20, 20 people, I think. So, so they were smaller units in the at that time. So, what do we need to know about what's what's your advice for setting up these agreements and these terms? What's 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 good advice for setting those up? Um, I think you really need, I, I worked with a lawyer that kind of helped me come up with the, the ideas of the different variables of, of, uh, you know, could we do it through equity? Could we do it through debt and really understanding that and then putting together a private placement, which costs about 10 at that time, it costs about 10, 15,000, but I think it's, what's more a private like, placement. It's just an offering to investors. Uh, it's like an offering memorandum laying out the deal, the legal notes, the risks, the upside, um, kind of the legal document and disclosures for taking money. So for your investors, what was the most appealing part of this? Um, well, I, I think I said it. I sold the deal that I, th- I thought there was very low risk on the deal and, and good upside, and they were going to get and doing it as a debt instrument, I was confident that I was going to get them paid back plus 10% interest. And at the time, that was... Like Where was return. your confidence coming from? How did you know this was going to be a good plan? Um, I'd had... Well, my first bar was successful despite despite um, paying... Not having some of the benefits of this bar. Um, the lease was much less... It had a liquor license we basically got for almost nothing. Um, and I had a lot of confidence that downtown was going to turn around. I was yeah. able to convince people that. What was your life, argument? Do you remember the argument you used to convince people that it was going to happen? Um, the argument was really that my co- I, I think people picked up on my confidence because at the same time, uh, another friend of mine, a partner of mine, was building lofts in the area. And also really believed in downtown LA. We kind of set out in a parallel track that he would build the housing for downtown and I would build the nightlife. Um, and so we were both really dedicated. He was going to dedicate putting everything in. And the city had gotten behind him in a big way. Uh, changed the zoning in downtown from allowing all these old buildings that were sitting empty to be turned into live work lofts. Um, which made it really pencil suddenly pencil doing so live work lofts in the area there's an underlying shortage of housing in the in the city at the time 
and uh, I, I could just feel the vibe in the neighborhood changing. So there's an underlying message here that it's not, if you want to go build a business, you're not just building a business. You're not just working on the business. You're working on the community. You're, you're transforming a community. And it seems like there was a strategy. You knew that the, the you had access privy to information that you knew that there was a change coming, that there was active things happening in politics and business that was going to rejuvenate this, this, this place. So you knew that there was a wave of opportunity coming and you wanted to catch that wave and you wanted to, to, to do good. You wanted to. Yeah. I knew I could be part of that wave. Yeah. I could help facilitate that wave as well too. It was almost like a movement of created by me and us and Gilmore at the time. Tom Gilmore was the developer of the real estate. So you want to open. And, and I think that's true. I think when you open a, a venue in any area you go into, you really are, you're investing in that community you're, and you have to really believe in that community you're going into um, and, and believe that you can make a positive impact on that community. Um, and so real quick, you said you had a goal. You want to open 10 restaurants in 10 years. Did you, did you hit that goal? We did. So what, and without getting into detail, what was, what was bar numbers one through 10 or two through 10? Uh, the second one was Broadway bar. Okay. Third one was Casey's Irish pub. Fourth was seven grand whiskey bar. Um, fifth was, uh, changed names. Initially it was called Doheny, but now it's Kanye rum bar. Um, next was. Las Perlas, Mescal Bar, then then it was Coles, The Varnish, I know I'm missing something. So we got... Uh, Tony's Saloon, I think, was next. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Tony's Saloon is nine. Okay. Oh, we absorbed 4100 Bar into the group, too, which was a bar that... I was partners in outside of two one three. So how much time Brought. elapsed from from Golden Gopher to um, Broadway? Uh, that we opened the next one was a year later. A year later, what happened in that first year? The first nine months, you were just rejuvenating it. Was it a year after you opened, or a year from the purchase? Uh, right after we opened it, I, I was already looking for the next deal. So I'm assuming that you didn't have any of the same people that were working there when you took when you took over when you reopened. Did you re-employ any of the previous employees? Oh, from which place? From the Golden uh, Gopher. From the when you took over, you you shut down. You, you oh yeah, you cleaned house literally and, and figuratively. I'm assuming with people. Yeah, the only the only um, bartender they had was somebody that was just was bringing in his own booze and basically putting the money in his own wallet in, fr- in front of us. That's literally. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, so when you came, so when you reopened, what was the narrative? What was the brand? What was the energy? What was going on? What were you trying to say? Well, at the time it was, I was getting advice and of course people were like, Oh, well you got to bring Hollywood people downtown. You got to do bottle service. You got to do, um, you know, expensive drinks and try and bring this neighborhood back. So all the and, advice and, that, uh, uh, that that was the standard advice out there. That's how you did a bar. It was at the all time. about image. It was all about and, status. And, and I was 
my instincts were different. Like, what were your instincts? My, my instincts were safety and, and looking out for like survival Yeah, because it was dangerous and we wanted to protect our staff. We wanted to protect our customers. And I felt like that was first and foremost. What were you like doing? Not, not, there was no goal whatsoever of making money the first couple of years. It was like not even in the top of, back of my mind because there was, and we had a couple of years, we had five years on the notes to pay them back. So, so I didn't, wasn't in a hurry to, to like initially make a profit, but so your by priority doing that, was survival safety, survival and safety and, and creating a safe environment because that didn't exist in downtown LA at the time. There was no safe place to go. So what were you doing to make your employees and your staff feels or your uh, guests feel safe? The most important thing was we brought everyone together and, and really said, we're about this business about looking out for each other and we have to protect each other. It's dangerous in this neighborhood. We have the highest murder rate in the United States and and i'm i'm here to protect you and and everyone here has to be here to protect each other and look out for each other and have each other's back and if you don't you should you're off the team because that that is first and foremost here or else somebody's going to get hurt and and you're not going to be feel aligned with the rest of us so What's amazing about this is that you're being very literal in the sense that this is dangerous. We're here to protect each other. We're here to, but that's the same general philosophy that all restaurants should have. My job as the owner is to protect you, my employee, to the bad world that's out there. The we all all we need is you know looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, security, safety. That's right there after food and shelter. We need to feel secure. And you knew in this environment that they didn't even have that. So that was the most important thing you had to address. Yes. And we- so that, you know, and it was almost instinct. I, I didn't know that that was the right thing to, in order to turn their business around at the time. But I knew it was the right thing to do for my people and for and in order for me to build, be able to build something over the next 10 years in the long run was to was to focus on safety first and make everyone feel like like they were that they they were safe when they came to work so everything we did was based around about around building that safe environment for them um really everyone had to pair up they had to work together in teams when they got off work they were walked to their car in teams they came when they arrived at work. They were the, the security would meet them at their car, walk them safely, safely to the bar. It was that dangerous that you ripped, really didn't you ripped feel the safe. roof off the ceiling so you could have a place for people to smoke, so they didn't have to do it on the street. Exactly. So even our design was oriented around protecting and keeping our customers safe. Um, so it it, but what came out of that was something that was really kind of magical that led to the magic and the success of our business. I mean, opening 26 bars is, is, uh, is a tough thing and, and to make them all successful. And the experience I had from this one bar, things that you seem to know about, I didn't know at the time. And, but I discovered by building a safe environment for my people that brought my team together in in an amazing way. They became very, very tight 
friends and and what we call family in our company. We don't look at it as as a traditional st- staff versus owner and and manager type res- type relationships. We're we're in family and we we look out for each other. We have each other's back. That's the vision of our company is basically based around about having each other's back as well. And, uh, and by doing that, the team became very, very close and they became feeling safe in that environment because they knew everyone on their, on their team had their back and that we had their back. And then they really wanted to have our back as well. Um, as, as, as the owners of the business as well. So quid and, pro and, quo. And as soon as customers began, you know, began finally peeking their head back in the bar, our staff really wanted to have the customers' backs as well and make making them feel safe in that neighborhood as well. Which which turned the place into an amazing word of mouth spread and it became like a it was like a gravitational pull to that space. That was it, my it, next question. Like, when did you guys start to catch traction? I'd say within three or four weeks, the place was pretty much full. But on the weekends, it was it was crazy full on the weekends at capacity, and uh, and during the week, it's just steadily built, and and um, the bar you know ended up blowing away our projections of what we could do in the first year was extremely profitable. I think within the first quarter it was profitable. So how did you structure your business model to be profitable? In terms of just like what were you doing? Like what was your strategy to, to make sure you're making turning a profit? Like what was the the, the we didn't sell we, alcohol and <laughs> sell alcohol. Yeah. We, our idea was to take to protect our people. We had no <laughs> idea that we were gonna make money the first six months, first quarter of the first year. It was our staff wanting wanting to drive that by us keeping them safe and by having their back, um, and and we the mantra was like let's have each let's have each other's back and let's have our customers back, and our staff went over above and beyond in doing that. Uh, they ended up doing things for the customer that we were doing for them. Like what? Like walking. For example, them out? like like. Um, uh, the security would walk people back to their lofts after coming to the bar, especially the, the gals, um, making sure that they felt safe. Um, as soon as they walked in, we we're, we we're, we we're, we we're doing everything to make them feel safe and comfortable. Eye contact, um, making them feel like they were part of our family as well. Um, basically asking where they lived, where they, um, what they expected in a, in a neighborhood bar, and what what can we do to make you feel safe here? Um, was was really the kind of questions we would ask our our customers, and uh, because that was top of mind for everyone. So you said you were looking for location number two within three months of having the first location open, or the second, so not location, but concept number two, Broadway. Um, at what point? How? At what pace were you opening rest or bars? Keep on saying restaurants because I talked to so many restaurants. At what pace were you opening bars thereafter? Uh, approximately once, once every year, approximately there were some years where we opened two bars in a year, but generally it was about one a year. Why was that a good pace for you? Uh, it was the pace at which, you know, it was about a year, uh, 
nine months to a year of construction and development of, of a lot of the bars. So it allowed, it gave us time to use the same crew and just rotate the crew from one, one bar to another. Wait, so you would pull your crew out of one bar and put them into the, the new bar that you were opening? The construction crew, yeah. So what do you mean the construction crew? The oh, team you're building the bars. So did you have a whole construction business that was vertical integrated? No, no, we weren't. But I was my designer was kind of a construction expert as well. So he would oversee the, the, the construction of the bars as well and work with certain specialists and and uh uh that were part of the community so was that part of the 213 management company that was behind the scenes doing the work were they getting paid by 213 no no it was it was it was just a crew that we believed in that that they contracted out that we contracted to build the bars and you so there's something else there it's also creating it's not just creating opportunity for people who are within your organization but it's for creating opportunity for the people you're going to collaborate with and partner with to execute on this vision. True. You know, um, <clears throat> what about within the organization? Um, to, to open a, a bar to staff, a bar, one up new bar every year. Where are you finding these people in terms of the staff? Yeah. Um, well, my, my whole thing was to hire the right general manager, put the right general manager in. So my process was, was interviewing general managers and finding somebody that, that could could run that believed in the, my philosophy at the time and what was your philosophy did it evolve at this point when you're going from locations two three and four it was to take care of people mm. pretty simple yeah pretty yeah. powerful we wanted experience but not experience that was to the detriment of of thinking that they know any better than anybody else we want people with humility with with graciousness willing to take the high road willing to invest in their people and take care of the people. Um, and on, honestly, over the years, we've learned the best people actually have come from within our, with, from started at the bottom with us, started as barbacks, bussers. And honestly, that's where our best general managers have come from because they built, they start a barback position as a position of humility and self-sacrifice for the bar. Um, and we think that's an inherent trait of a good leader and a good manager to have that 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 mindset opportunity. That's one of the big things that appealed about me is that you do you do create opportunity, you do recruit from within, you do promote from within. I think that's huge. I think people will come to work for you if they know that you can get them someplace beyond the the job they're applying for. Right? Absolutely. <clears throat> people want to grow. People want opportunity. Yeah, I mean, over time. I think along the way of building these 10 bars, I'm like, initially my goals were all about building these bars, but along the way during this big goal of building 10 bars, I discovered, Hey, the magic isn't opening bars. It's in p- investing in people. Yes. That is a huge lesson. And that was, that was the huge lesson. And that's after that 10 year push, that's when I wanted to change the name of the company. It's not about creating opportunity for yourself. It's about creating opportunity for everyone around you. And I think that's probably been one of the biggest lessons I've learned. You mentioned Danny Meyer when we first talked on the on the Zoom call uh, just to get to know each other and to, you know, the, that first introductory call. Um, 
and that's one, that's one thing I've identified that he does in his restaurant group that you do in your restaurant group and all the restaurant groups that I truly admire is they recognize that they can't do it alone and that they find people who are going to go on and do it without them, without their help or with their help. And they say, Hey, you're going to go do this anyway. I might as well invest in you. I might as well do it with you. And I can like in, in creating opportunity for others, you're creating opportunity for yourself. You, you can't do it alone and you, you have to be an outlet for an opportunity for people. When, what was the catalyst for you? When did this, when did this go off inside of you? When did you know that this was the, the secret? Well, I think it, you know, after a while of the, the self-sacrifice and, and the hard work of my people and it was, it was inspiring for me. I already loved bar people. I loved, I loved, um, I liked, you know, they, they were people I naturally gravitated to fellow my fellow misfit and uh and along the way it just i i there was enormous amount of pride for me and people that that work their ass off and put their hearts out for other people constantly and were able to work their way up from from barbacks into general into amazing bartenders and amazing leaders and in our family I talk about Andrew in the book, for example, as somebody that started so proud of who started his bar back with me and now is the CEO of our company. And uh, it's just these amazing people that I was surrounded with inspired me to be better and inspired me to want to be, take better care of my people and, and, and that, that the magic wasn't in the bars themselves and even though I thought maybe that was the case in terms of the design and the amazing cocktails we were serving, but the magic was in our people and yes. in the amazing people being of service to everyone around them and doing it in such a, a beautiful, unselfish way. So you, you know that your, your strategy behind scaling was going after GMs, recruiting good GMs over time. You realize that it's from promoting from within. And this is one of the things I learned. It's like, when do you know it's time to open a new location when your current locations are busting at the seams with people that need to go someplace because there's no more opportunity for them within that organization. You have to open a new one to move people to create more opportunity. Yeah. Right? I and mean, that's, that's really what's driven our company to really grow. Cause I was gonna say you, you went far beyond 10 locations. You're 16 yeah. locations beyond that. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and we're just beginning. It's just the very beginning of, of our goals. What are your goals? Um, our mission is, and uh, and BHAG, big hairy audacious goal, is um, 2030 by 2030. Eight that, years. That means, yeah, we have eight years to build 2030 careers. We have 400 right now, so that's we're gonna have to open another hundred plus stores in the next eight years. I want to get into what your strategy is gonna be to execute that, but I really you mentioned your your strategy was going after general managers, developing general managers. Then you realize that it's from promoting within, but you have a lot of partners in your businesses. It's not just you. Mm -hmm. um, is there a strategy of like, will you open a, a, a bar if you don't have a partner to open that bar? Or are you look like what's going on there? What's the strategy behind partnerships? Well, after the first 10 years, we decided to, to re re, you know, I wanted to reorient the company towards people. Um, Reorientate? And, and it sounds like you already were oriented. We were or initially, but this I mean, our, goal, our goals were set on opening bars. It yeah. wasn't set on 
building people. Yeah. Um, but that's where I wanted to go. When next. did you realize and that, this? And that's where we wanted to go. Um, this was after doing the first, I think about 12 bars. We, we ultimately built about 15, 16 in downtown and then started going into other cities as well. Denton, we're in San Diego now. We're in Denver. We, we opened, we've opened five in Austin. Um, but, you know, and we, we got to a point where we needed to, to think bigger in terms of how our structure was going to work of our company. Um, and we also wanted to rebrand the company because we were no longer just in Los Angeles. The name 213 didn't apply when we were going to a bar in a city like Austin. They didn't necessarily like the fact that we were like an out Los Angeles bar group. Um, and we want to, when we go into a community, we want to support that community. We're not about being LA or whatever, so to speak. We're, we're about supporting whatever community we go into, not pretending we're better than anybody else. Um, we want to support that community. We, um, we want to build something special that does support that community. So you, you said you, you realized you went from a point where you realized we're not in the business of developing bars. We're in the business of developing people. How did you start doing things differently after having that realization? Well, I think it's been an evolution for us. I mean, that, that be clear direction was established and then everything decisions from there going forward were based around developing people instead of developing bars. So what does that so, look like? Paint that picture of what developing people developing people looks like. Well, we had to build like a career path, for example, a clear career path so we could lay it out for people like we're about building your career. So when you come to us, you might be starting as a bar back, but we're we're orienting everything towards That's just the front door. That's the front door. Yeah. And that's we want to get you to being a, a, a bartender and not only a bartender, but a, a great bartender and a legendary bartender with us. And then that's just the beginning too, because in order to really build a career with us, we want you to also have another option because you might burn out as a bartender and, or want to have a family or want to buy a home. So we need to give you a path to keep growing with us from there into management and leadership positions. And, uh, and so we had to like clarify that and, and where'd lay, you learn this? this direction? Who, t- who taught you this? Was there uh, somebody you went to that, that taught you how to build these paths? Or is no, it? No, I've, I've, we've, we, we started hiring coaches. Um, we worked with several different coaches. Uh, Sean Fenter was a great coach for us that helped us lay out some of our things like our value, our core values to, define them in a great way and, and get the word out to our people about them. When did, when did, at what point did you go through these exercises? Uh, it was after, I think it began about, it was about, about, about eight, about eight, nine years ago now. Okay. So we began going through these. Almost 10 years into existence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what, what are your core values? I've putting got, you on the spot I, here. I've got them tattooed on me, so it's, it, makes <laughs> yeah. it, it makes it easy. Um, and it's so cool because a lot of our bartenders, we, we design the core values so that they, they also look great as tats. And, and, we, and they're, we, we, well, we pay for you if you're going to tattoo one of our values on you. That's awesome. Um, 
Yeah, the two that probably resonate the most with me that were my some of my first tattoos were uh, it's failing forward, um, which basically is learning from mistakes. It's not uh, what your tattoo says, though, is it? Yeah, it doesn't. It says, <laughs> it says well, fuck, <laughs> and uh, and it's and it really it's something for me personally because I've personally made a lot of mistakes and I've made a lot of bad bad decisions during my life. And, uh, I know we all have, we're human beings. We all make, and, and it's really about letting our people know that when I stand up and I'm the head of the company and I'm up there saying, I make mistakes and that's okay. But what you got to do is own it and own those mistakes, not blame it on other people, not pass the buck, own it and get better. Learn from that mistake, learn from the pain of that mistake and that fuck up because we all do. But if you don't own it and grow from it, you're not you're not really going to be successful. And uh, in our company, it's okay for, if people aren't making mistakes, we think they're not pushing themselves enough and it's okay to make mistakes. And uh, it's part of the values of the company. I think too often in in this industry, um, people make mistakes and they feel like they're going to get fired for that. In our company, we, we, we pull them aside and go, Oh, well, what, that's okay. You made a mistake, but what'd you learn from that mistake? Mm-hmm. And, and how how can how can you prevent that in the future? Um, and maybe that's something we can learn from as well. And maybe we didn't do a good enough job training that person, so it's something we can learn also from that mistake. Yeah. How many of your current rest? So or, so, so that's sorry. Like, oh, go ahead. No, you're gonna finish talking about. I was going going around the values. Yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. Values, so uh, you have well fuck the tattoo that was yeah translates to learn from your fa- mistakes, fa- go failing forward. forward. Yep. Um, stay weird, which is on my shoulder here, which is really about inclusivity and, and that, that we want people to be themselves and come to work as themselves and be appreciated for being themselves. And I think each person can have their own personal brand of hospitality if they're, if they're genuine and being themselves and putting love out the way that they like to put their love out with their, the way they're comfortable doing it. Um, we ha- we have one bartender, for example, that's definitely stay weird. He's got comes from a punk rock background ethos, and and when a customer comes in, he'll be smiling ear to ear, and he'll tell him, "Go fuck yourself." And uh, <laughs> and and people that kind of get it tell him to go fuck himself, and then he pours you a free shot of <laughs> a free shot from there with a big ear to ear grin on his face. I like it. And he's totally himself. He's he. That's who he is, and uh, he he he's. That's the way he puts love out there. That's yeah. different than most people. And but that's probably, social intelligence. That's that's knowing that, like, you know, there's the, on the reading between the lines. You know. Yeah. So, yeah, but we, we want people to be there themselves and bring themselves and bring out the love they they like to bring the love out to. And so, stay weird is about that, and it's about inclusivity too, and that where everyone can be appreciated as, as for being themselves, no matter what their race or sexual orientation or male, female, whatever gender. Um, just, we, we want people to be, to show up as themselves and that we can celebrate the diversity of, of all these different people and different personalities. Fail for company. Stay weird. Yeah. Humility and gratitude. Humility three. and gratitude is three. Yeah, in order to be 
to own your mistakes, you really have to have a certain level of humility. You can't be a sociopath. Um, so humility and gratitude, you know, we want to be rooted in that. Um, friends and family, which is something we, from day one at Golden Gopher, we, we said, hey, we're, we're, not, we're not just friends, we're family. And it's kind of the route we take with our customers. We want to, every stranger that walks in is our friend. And, but our goal ultimately is to make them feel like they're part of our family, that they belong and they're part of something else. Part and they're part of our bars, and that they call that bar their their home, and they're comfortable there. Um, so from the top, I'm gonna see if I can remember this: fail, fail forward, um, stay word, humility and gratitude. Uh, I missed one. I think friends and family, friends and families, and take the high road. Take the high road. How many total are there? Six. Six. So that's five. And the, and the last one is um, connect by serving others. Connect by serving others which I don't have those tattoos yet, but, um, but they're great ones. Uh, connect by serving others is really, I think people in our industry that that's some of us were, were, and myself included are, are kind of introverts and, uh, but it's a great way to connect with people and meet people is through an act of serving them. I want service to people. I want you to know that on my flight over here, um, I, I updated my morning mantra because of you. Um, wow. So I, whenever I do my, my morning routine, when I, when I have the discipline to do my morning routine, um, I try to meditate and I try to, when I finish my meditation, I think to myself uh, a mantra of uh, community builder, uh, influencer, and connector is what I say because that's, those are the tests I took to t- kind of that tell me what I'm supposed to do, my strengths, and those, those personality tests. And then I say, inspire, empower, transform. And then I'm also, I made a note to say service to others. As far as a reminder of what I'm here to do to keep me on center line as to what my purpose is. So thank you. I figured that was a good time to share that I've, I want to refer because it's all about service to others. It's, it, it is, it's, you know, and it's that, that was, that's a key lesson for me. And I think it's important that that is something that surfaced every day in your life that you, you're here. It's not about you. It's about everybody else. No, it's not about our own, own stuff and our own baggage and all, all the problems we have. I think when we're serving others, we, 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 we tend to feel better about ourselves too. And it's, and it's a great way to focus your energy and and to me, that's what hospitality business is really rooted in, and really should be about. At least it's in my mind, and what it's definitely about for us, and important for our people to be living that value yeah. and, and being of service, not only to the customers, but to but to the community as well, and and to and to each other, and to be looking out for each other. Um, we really don't put up with any kind of infighting in our company, and people um backstabbing each other and and um it's just it's just not tolerated it's not it's not it's not that's because that's not what hospitality should be rooted in so you have this goal in the next 10 years or eight years to grow by basically a thousand percent right is that what you said 230 employees to uh we're 400 now 400 you want to get to how many 2030 2030 230,000 employees was it? 
2030 no. from 400. Two, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. Sorry, so it's 200, basically five times our size. Five times your size. What is your growth strategy over the next eight years? How are you going to execute that? Uh, well, we've done... We've been setting structure the last few years. We've rebranded our company. We restructured our business so that all the bars were under one umbrella, pouring with heart. Um, and we we built an, a, a team that's all about growth at, at the executive level. That um, is part of. It's basically kind of creates a flywheel for driving growth for the future. Um, like a full, for example, full-time uh, chief ex- development officer, chief. Well, we have obviously have a CEO, um, head of acquisitions, head of operations, head of uh, a CFO that's head of like, raising the money. So, if you're listening to this, they're hiring. <laughs> yeah, we, we are. <laughs> but what about promoting from within? Is that part of your strategy to fill these roles? Oh yeah, all the top people have grown. And our company have really grown from within. All our directors were have worked their way up from from bartender barback positions into into where they are now. So, and so we're all about you know that career path and building that clear path for people so that they can grow and be GMs, directors, and be eventually be partners of ours yeah. too. Because as soon as you move to a GM, you also get shares. Um, equity units and all, not only the bar you're working, but all our bars. So we've restructured the company so everyone can benefit and win together from the growth as well. I love that. That's huge. So um, when you're looking to open a new location, what what determines the how many duplicate concepts do you have? Um, we have we only have a few that are duplicates. Seven grand we've got in four cities. Las Perlas, we've got in two cities. Kanya, two cities. Um, but generally, it's fresh concepts yeah. in, in each Why place. Why is that important? Uh, because we want the space to speak to us. We want the city to speak to us. We want the community. We want to look at what's really needed in that community. And, and we want it to feel fresh and not like a chain. So uh, it's one of the big things, and out of all the different approaches to business, whether you want a franchise or you want to be a corporation or you want to be a restaurant group or a bar group with multiple concepts, it's this approach that you take that most appeals to me, where I think that is the right balance between scale and humanizing business, is that when you have a concept, a, a brand, and you want to take that to 300 locations, I feel like it's really hard to... I don't know. I think a big part of the the success of a concept is that it's somebody's creation. You know, like it's it's there's a sense of identity t- tied to it, and I think it's easier. To, it's harder to get a bunch of people to get behind the identity of one concept, one brand, versus part of what makes the magic of a restaurant or a bar work is the people behind it and the pride associated with the 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 creative outlet of designing and building something that is yours. And I think we underestimate that. Yeah, no, it's so true. And we really want the team that works at the bar to really buy into the concept and feel like it's theirs as well. We forget the creative element. It's, you know, we, I think it's important that we, that people recognize that we are creative by nature and we need that. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's so true. And and I think remembering even a bunch of misfits can do great things. That's why I, t- I tell my people, like, we're a bunch of misfits, but together we're capable of, do- of great things and that we're all, that individually we're capable of great things as well. But collaboratively we can do amazing things. Yes. And, uh, and together, you know, the force of that collaborative team really believing in a concept and believing that that space is special and believing that that concept is special in that city. It's not, it's not, you know, a square puzzle piece being stuffed into a, a, a round circle space, you know, that it really fits within that city. That concept fits within that city. It fits that brand fits with the people that are working there and that they believe in it as well is so important. Um, if your people don't believe in, in, in what you're doing, then your customers are going to feel that and, yeah. and, and they're not going to want to come back. So these future locations you're going to open, these future brands, what's determining what you open? Um, well, currently we're, we're, we're building out six to eight bars per city that we go into. So really, really up front, we're choosing the city first. Um, right now we're really building out central Texas and Denver. We have six to eight in those cities to build out. Um, and before moving to the next city, why is it important to build out one city before moving to the next? Um, because we need enough to build an infrastructure in that city. So basically what we call a director that oversees that city that oversees six to eight bars, oversees six to eight general managers and can really manage and run that city like as a mini CEO. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a big advocate of centrific central or centrific circle growth. So this idea, I think, and I was curious, when did you leave LA? How many concepts did you have before you left LA? Uh, we had about 12 before ever leaving the city. Yeah. Why? And all within one area. Yeah. I think we might believe in the same thing. What we believe in is creating bar districts and creating an area where there's multiple good spaces to go to because I think it creates a much bigger destination. Ironically, I mean, it's pretty amazing because in downtown LA, it was the least desirable place to go out at night. Now it's number one, the most desirable place. It's, it's the biggest destination in the city of Los Angeles Congratulations. For, night, for nightlife. I'm sure you had something to do with that. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> I know yeah, there's, well, there wasn't I, just I, you. I did, but it's it's my it took people. An army. It it's, took an army. It took an army. It took a, a bunch of of um, an army of, of beautiful misfits alongside me to to do it. So I can't really take the credit myself. Maybe I had the I, the vision and the idea, but I needed you know it was, it was my people that did that executed it. So I'm forever grateful to them and it's, uh, they deserve to, to celebrate the success with, with us. I love it. Um, we, can you believe we've been almost talking for two hours? Are you serious? Yeah. It goes by really fast. We got a little more than, uh, we got 12 minutes left together before we got to start wrapping things up. Wow. But I did want to make sure that we left time to, to talk about whatever it is that you wanted to talk about. Um, what haven't we discussed in today's episode that you were hoping would come to the conversation? Well, um, the book. Yeah. Um, I wrote a book called pouring with heart, which I think you mentioned earlier. 
Don't worry, I have plans to get you back on the show to dive deeper into the book. Today yeah. we're just getting to know you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're always and, welcome back. And thank you. I'm enjoying this, and I think we're aligned on yeah. philosophy, which is a beautiful thing. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to buy the to talk more about the book because I think the book is a love letter to our industry at a very tough time in in our industry right now, and and I I'm, I want to. In this book, I'm basically giving away the secrets to, to our success in the hope that other people can be inspired and and tap into their hearts and take better care of people, the people around them and realize that is probably the biggest driver, going to be the biggest driver of their success. Um, and uh, it feels great to do it, and it's going to help drive your business in a, in a beautiful way. I mean, Danny Meyer is famous for talking about that too. It's not the food, it's not, it's not the lighting, it's not the design that's made me successful, that's driven my success. Those are all important factors, but the biggest factor that drives my success is the power of hospitality, and leveraging that power of, of hospitality and and of taking really making people feel like they're they're appreciated and taken care of, and that goes for your staff and your customer. It's about relationships. Yeah, I mean that's how you build relationships yeah. is building that trust and building and making people feel like they're seen and heard and appreciated for being for who they are. You you reinforce a lot of my beliefs um in this book. Uh some of the things that you you talk about is the significance of um being in person uh and certain things that come from just being across the bar from somebody. You talk about how the heart has a brain. And uh, I think that there's a level of communication that happens when you're physically with people uh, that we've only begin to, to begun to understand the low road of communication. I mean, they say that the like five percent of all communication is verbal, mm-hmm. but you know, there's so much that's happening there, down to pheromones, down to energy, down to things that we just haven't even figured out yet. That we're just beginning to figure out. And there's something about being together that's so important that you tap you you, you tap onto. The, you mentioned names. I'm I'm planning on following up some of the people that you quote in the book, especially around the science of hospitality, because that's a fascination of mine. Uh, you talk about the importance of technology uh, or the the impact, the negative impact of technology, um, which is, I mean, it's it's weird because we're we're forced right now to be in this time where we need technology to move forward, but at what cost? And it's all you see is the, the conversation about uh, of what we need to be doing to change, to adopt and adapt to technology. But I, th- I think what's not what's missing from the dialogue is at what cost. You kind of touch on that. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I'd like to touch on that. And I think um, it also leads to another point that that's important to me in the book and and to my our philosophy and our company too, and uh, which has evolved over time and and took three years to write this book and it evolved during that time as well um but yeah i i i you know it it is interesting to me the fact that the heart has its own brain within it and that it's basically sending emotional messages to our the heart is sending emotional messages to the brain on what to on how to how to behave and how to uh sends message it's not the other way around with the brain sending messages to the heart it's kind of fascinating. I, and, and in terms of technology, I think technology and all the data is proving that de- technology is actually making us feeling more disconnected from each other 
and, and lonelier as a society. And uh, just kind of understanding that and realizing the importance of one-to-one interaction and conversation and trust, building trust one, one person at a time is really important for humanity and for each other. Um, so I think bars and restaurants and hospitality in general can, is, is maybe more important than ever in the history of our species in some ways, because we've gotten to a point where society has, has been, you know, the, the level of loneliness they say is at the all time high. Um, and that's driven mostly by, by technology, unfortunately. Um, and the pandemic didn't help. That's for sure. Well, exactly. And I think that's kind of the point that I want to make sure it's, it's weird because I have a lot of colleagues out there uh, who share their philosophies on how to grow your brand using social media, using digital assets, being more present, sharing your story online. But every second, every minute you're talking to your phone and talking to thousands or tens of thousands of people is a minute, a second that you're not talking to people that are right across the table from you. Exactly. You know, and we only have 24 hours in a day and the restaurant owner and the bar owner is fucking busy enough, dude. Do they really need more responsibility? Yeah. It's a serious, like a A genuine relationship can't be built over social media. No. And I'm not going to argue. It can't be built by Alexa or or Siri. I'm sorry. I, um, so I'm not going to argue only like this one to one. Exactly. And I'm not going to, this is exactly why I drive across the country, man, because I know that I can't replicate this over zoom. Like you can keep up with relationships remotely, but you can't make a relationship as significantly, as significantly as you can in person. And I think it's important that we don't forget that. Um, I'm not going to argue that those practices won't help your business. They absolutely will help your business in today's age. But the question, and it, there's a question that is this necessary? Do we need to do this? Is this an absolute necessity in your business? It's arguable. The answer is yes. And I think that that is a real problem, that that's true. And it's up to us to change those truths, you know? Um, so I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we, we use social media in our bars. I'm not on social media myself because I'm, I'm like over over it personally. I totally understand. There's a reason um, why I have but, people following me around. <laughs> but uh, and it was kind of a freedom to know that I'm not having to to deal with that. Um, but but I think for a for a bar or restaurant, yeah, having a social media presence to let people know what's going on in your establishment and so forth is is, is still important. But the idea is to get them into your business so that you can have these one-on-one yeah. relationships and build that trust and build those relationships over time and make people feel that that they that they're important and that you want their business um and uh you know building those tr- that trust is getting people in the door with social media but to do it and then to not forget that the most important part of building business is that one-to-one I do think it's necessary. Yeah, I do think it's necessary, but I think I think it should be seen as a, an opportunity to create an op- it's a it's an opportunity to create an opportunity for right. somebody else who is talented with social media, who loves that sort of thing, who's a documenter and who just is fascinated by that world. Create opportunity for somebody else. Be the you know be be the source of opportunity. Um, I, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. With that being said, what is one thing that you think needs to change in our industry? Are these the hot questions? The, no, this is the last question before the speed round. The speed round? Okay. Um, 
What what are the things? Can you repeat the question one more time? So our, my mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. What is one thing that um, you think we can do better in our industry? Like, like I, I was saying broken. I've been encouraged to get away from the word broken because there's a lot that has improved with our industry. But what needs to change to continue to move in the right direction to transform the industry? I think we need to take better care of our people. And uh, What does that look I like? Think, and, I, you know, I think we're, we're – trying to always answer ask that ourselves to our people and to ourselves and 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 so that we keep evolving and being better at taking care of our people but i think it's really about letting your people know they're appreciated and 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 specifically what they're appreciated for seeing Um, them and seeing them hearing them and and being there for them and and letting you know how much you appreciate them. A lot of people feel in the workplace feel underappreciated. And they say that's the number one reason that people leave a job is they don't feel appreciated. They don't feel respected. They don't feel like they matter. And we need to make sure that we, if we're in hospitality, we need to show hospitality to our people. Yeah. We need to take care of our people and make sure that they're seen and heard and taken care of. Um, another important factor for us is building that career, building opportunity, letting them know it's not a dead end job that every, every position in our company, we want to, we say there's another, there's another step for them to go and, and, and grow. And, and we want to help them get there. We want to help them achieve their dreams. We want to help them achieve success. Um, I love it. One more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we're going to bust out a true speed round because we're almost at time. Today's episode is brought to you by Talk to the Manager. Look, nowadays, people rather send you a text message than speak to you directly face-to-face. That's just the way people choose to communicate, and there's not much we can do about it. Or is there? Talk to the manager allows guests to share feedback or ask questions in a way that makes them feel comfortable and is also convenient to you. Don't worry about personal information being shared. Customers won't see your personal phone number, just the number that Talk to the Manager provides. You can even delegate customer feedback and divide the workload amongst your managers. Multiple managers can receive these texts. When one manager replies to a customer, the other staff will see their responses too. What I personally love most about Talk to the Manager is that you can fix issues immediately in private before complaints go public online. Many times when people do write a negative review, it's because they just want to be heard. And Talk to the Manager gives them that outlet to be heard before they bring it publicly and drag your name through the mud. Plus, with Talk to the Manager, get issues brought to your attention, whether it's an issue with your restaurant's service, product, or facility. Your guests will let you know whether you want to hear it or not, but this will help you improve. Using Talk to the Manager is so intuitive that no technology is required. If you can send a text message, you can use Talk to the Manager. Show guests you care enough to listen with Talk to the Manager. Head to talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your 60-day trial. That's www.talktothemanager.com slash unstoppable. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make 
on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Pouring with heart. What is your biggest weakness? The lack of that, the lack of, of, um, of, of, of using, using my, my brain too much versus my heart. Mm. What is one thing you look for when you're growing your team, when you're hiring, when you're, when you're interviewing, what do you look for? Uh, we look for alignment with our values. We hire based on values and character. It's more important than experience for us. I love it. What is one of your biggest challenges today? Uh, meeting our growth goals, 2030 by 2030. How are you dealing with it? Hiring hiring amazing people that can help us achieve those goals. What is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? A core value. You've already shared all of your core values, but maybe resurface one. Um, the beauty of, of being yourself, and we want you to be yourself. We're not, we're not telling you to be anybody else but yourself. You are a human being. Yes. I love that idea of just be. Yeah, you're a human being. We're, we're all different, and and... And we need to celebrate that. What's one uncommon standard of service you teach your team that's common within all of your bars, but not a common standard throughout the industry? Well, I think this the, against the status quo, the idea that the heart is more important than, than the brain is, is, is essential to who we are. It's our DNA and it's different. It's definitely different than the industry and the competitors that we, we, we have out there. Also the fact that we're, we our prof our goals are all set on building careers for our people, not on profits. Mm. And profit comes with that. It's a byproduct of that. Right. I love that. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to become a better person or bar or restaurant operator? I think wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, besides my own book, I think <laughs> for for bar owners and bartenders, I, I would highly recommend my book with heart but but i think there's amazing books out there for for making us all better people and 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 hospitality is all about being better at taking care of people and being and and treating yourself better too i i think all the books by Brene brown are really important for building relationships her latest book i would recommend what's it called the map of the heart I think it's the Atlas of the Heart. That's a great book. Yeah, she's. I would love it. to get her on our show. She's kind of in high demand, though. 
We'll yes. see what we can do. <laughs> I'm sure she'd be a tough one. Um, and then your book, of course, Pouring With Heart. Um, and I, for the record, I do want to make sure, I mean, I'm opening up the door. Uh, no need to commit now, but I'd love to get you back on the show to dive deep into one of these chapters. I, I want to get some of your, your partners on the show, too. You talk about Pedro in the book, who um, is a career bar back by choice. Uh, also another podcaster, so I'd love to kind of kick the can around with him. But I think there's opportunity for us to collaborate in the future uh, to, to pour into the lessons of in of pouring with heart. So this this book will be resurfacing within Restaurant Unstoppable. Don't you worry about that, my friend. I loved it. Um, so the next question I have for you is: What is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? I think I dove into that a little bit. Was was um, focusing on their people and not just on their customers and investors. Yeah. And, and uh, I think it's something that's even more, a lot of people right now are complaining about the lack of staff and they can't get their people to come back and so forth. And, and, and I think that is a byproduct of the fact that their people maybe didn't feel like they had the opportunity and within that restaurant and bar before COVID and, and if, if you had given them that opportunity, maybe they'd want to come back and if yeah. you'd taken better care of them. Um, so I think it makes all of us ask that question. Like, what can we do better to take care of our people? I love it. What is one service you've outsourced or hired? So this is something that you could never do as well in-house, so you outsource it out-of-house. Outsourcing. Um, construction. Um yeah, I think that's... Who do you, you know, use? What's the name of the company? Well, it's, we, we try and find the best contractors within each city we go into. So, Is there one contractor that's just been very impressive that comes to mind immediately? No. Right. Not, not, sorry. <laughs> I'm, it's not my department anymore. No, I hear you. I hear my you. head of development would answer that question. Skip. Pete, who's, <laughs> who's worked his way up from being my personal assistant to now chief development officer of our company. I'm really proud of him. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted within the four walls of your bars that's had a huge impact on operations? Smart Tab is is, is the brand we 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 like it. Um, we want them to be successful because it's the first real POS that's built around specifically for bartenders and to make those orders much easier. Also, they've, they're developing a lot of technology that we really like in terms of being able to track regulars and so forth in your bar. Nice. Um, what about inventory management? Being in the bar industry, I know that you, you must be following bar inventory pretty closely. Is there a company that's doing that really well? Uh, we we like um, Bar Metrics is probably the best that we've worked with. Got um, it. Yeah, they, they do a good job. Beautiful. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy, so open your ears, get ready for it. Here it comes. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your bars would be lost with your departure, with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What are those three pieces of wisdom? Wow, that's a big one, Yeah, man. I don't mess around. <laughs> wow. Um, be of service to others. One. Take the high road. Two. And fail forward. Three. Seth, I've loved this conversation, man. I really have. And it was a pleasure to read your book and be inspired by your book. Uh, really, like I said, I think our, our I would like our relationship to just be beginning. I, I would love to get you back to talk about certain chapters in this book. Um, but 
before we say goodbye, I want to ask you, who is one person you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Call him out. Uh, Andrew Abrahamson. I think I mentioned him yep. on the email by email, too. It's just, uh, I think his story is very inspiring for people in our industry. The fact that he's worked his way up to Barback to CEO of, uh, of the, one of the biggest bar groups in the country. It's, it's an amazing story and, and hopefully inspiring for, for, for all of us. Yeah. Andrew, look out. I'm coming after you. I'm sure this isn't the last time I'll be in LA. So I'd love to get you on the show. And uh, how can we connect if we want to maybe come work for your restaurant group? Uh, is there social handles we should know about? What's the best way to connect? Uh, our website, um, www.pouringwithheart.com. Beautiful. Uh, and head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever episode number this is. I'm not sure what it will be, but I say it at the beginning of every episode and it's in the title. So I'm confident you can figure it out. Uh, said, I just can't say thank you enough. To, uh, I want to make sure I end today's episode with how you end this book and how I end a lot of the free flowing portions of our, our, our podcast is this idea that if we inspire, empower, and transform the hospitality industry, I full heartedly believe we can change the world. And that is exactly the sentiment that you ended this book in is that if we can change this industry, if we can inject values in this industry, if we can be, we are influencers in this industry. It's what we do. We change communities. We are public houses. We, we, that's what we do. We can change the world. We can set a new standard. And I think it's a, a, a mission worth living. So I want to get behind that, man. Absolutely. Let's live it every day. Let's so go. With that said, there is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thank you. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Said Moses, thank you so much, man, for coming on the show, uh, for sharing your story and your dude, so inspirational in what you're doing for downtown Los Angeles, how you are part of turning around that community and the opportunities you're creating for other uh, for others within your organization. Just such an honor to make an example of you and what you're doing over there at Pouring with Heart. And speaking of Pouring with Heart, if you guys have not picked up that book yet, Make sure you do. We'll have a link in the show notes. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 877 uh, to make sure to pick up that book and to get a summary of today's discussion. And um, man, so many things happening here at Restaurant Unstoppable. This was really such an amazing trip. Nine interviews in five days in two cities. Uh, you're just listening to the interview number two right now. And um, I'm reflecting back at a time Almost five years ago, I think it was 2018, 2000, so four years ago, uh, I was in Seattle, uh, one of my first cross country, like literally across the country road trips when I was still driving the Honda Fit around the country. I connected with Mark Canlis from Canlis Restaurants. Uh, he was a past guest in the show. I just wanted to introduce myself and say thank you in person, shake his hand for being a guest in the show. And he said, have you ever thought about slowing down? And putting all this energy into putting out so much content just to, to go slower, to go deeper, to be more intimate. And it really has stuck with me ever since. And that's kind of the direction I want to take Restaurant Unstoppable into the future. Still going to do two episodes a week, but I really want to go deeper with these connections I'm making on the road and to pull back the layers. So uh, I'm actually talking to said Moses tonight. We're going to talk about how we can get said back on the show to pull back some more layers on his book. And uh, if you guys enjoyed Troy Hooper earlier in the week, he is coming back next week to do a deep dive into the financial uh, turnaround of a restaurant when he when he has new clients. He's going to take us through the process he takes his clients through. And we have Abhinav Kapoor coming uh, to hang out 
from Bicky. So Bicky is that CRM I had on the show a few weeks back, and he's going to be answering questions in the network. And we also, um, what else? I think I think that's it. <laughs> that's it for uh, workshops next week. But I also want to take this time to say thank you to Savannah and Sam from SavinSam.com. Uh, they're following me around on the road, and we're just doing some incredible stuff. If you guys are in the market for social media, videography, or photography, check out SavinSam.com. That's it for today. Until next time, peace out out.